Welcome to another special edition of the ACG Analytics Podcast. This is David Metzner, Managing Partner. We are continuing our podcast series from home during the coronavirus pandemic. As a result of the following is a lightly edited version of a policy call we have already held. We will now proceed with the podcast. Well, welcome to today's weekly macro call. Never has this call been more important. It really sets the lens of ACG Analytics' focus for really the next six months. We now have a new dynamic in Washington. We have a one-party control of, of both houses of Congress and the White House. It's evenly split, but the Democrats will be able to set the agenda in the Senate. There's still 60 votes needed to proceed, and we're going to get understand how this new dynamic will affect Biden's policy choices. To lead the call, we have Chris Zerwinski, our lead international analyst, Bart Boosterfeld. We have our managing director, Gary Fessa, special guest, Larry McDonald, publisher of the Bear Traps Report, and a frequent collaborator with ACG Analytics. And of course, our intrepid head of research, John East. With that, I'd like to turn it over to Chris Zerwinski to begin today's analysis. Chris. Thanks, David. And yes, absolutely right. Has probably never been a a call as influential or or important as today in the wake of yesterday's social unrest and the flip of the Senate to the Democrats. John, I want to start there. It's obviously the most important policy shift for the next upcoming at least 12 months, 24 months. They haven't officially called the OSIF race yet. Is there any chance in your view of a recount and a Purdue victory there, or is is that completely out? Well, I would never put the risk at zero, but I think the answer is no. The next majority leader in the Senate is Chuck Schumer. Has Chuck Schumer ever been majority leader, John? No, not really, but it is going to be a very difficult job for him to take. He is facing a primary challenge known by the moniker AOC, and she is from the progressive wing, and it's going to put him and the agenda in a tough spot. So what does this mean now? We've got a Democratic Senate 50-50. You've talked before about how a 50-50 Democratic split is different than a 50-50 Republican split. You know, practically, what does this mean for the Biden policy agenda now? I think there are a lot of changes. So you would think that 50-50 either way wouldn't be that significant, right, mathematically. But it, it does mean a lot. It means that what bills come to the floor are different. And so what is negotiated, every single chairmanship of the Senate will change. It means that Democrats will probably pursue a reconciliation bill. Reconciliation is a mechanism by which the Senate can approve something by a simple majority vote. And while there are many constraints on what you can do via reconciliation, it's good to remember that Obamacare and the 2017 Republican tax reform bills were both reconciliation bills. It means that nominations to the Biden administration will change because of rules in the Senate, which were changed in the last decade that allow nominations to proceed with a simple majority. It means the death or retirement or some unforeseen circumstance of a single senator could mean that midway through this Congress, we have a complete and abrupt shift in power and a change in the committee assignments. This happened in 2001 when Jim Jeffords left the Republican Party and decided to caucus with the Democrats. It was a huge upheaval for the Bush administration. It means that there'll be a renewed push to change the so-called filibuster rules in the Senate. I don't believe the votes are there, but they could be there. I don't 
believe they are, but there will be pressure to change the rules the, the minute that a Democratic priority doesn't pass with 60 votes. And if that rule changes, the Senate will be like the House, and the content of all legislation will be affected in a severe fashion. It means that there will be a renewed effort for D.C. and Puerto Rico to be admitted to the Union as states, which would change the math for control of the House and Senate and also the, the math for the presidency of the United States, which could solidify democratic rule for years to come. There are very many ramifications. So 50-50 is not 50-50. So you, you mentioned reconciliation and potentially changing the filibuster rule. That changes how legislation is passed in D.C., as you mentioned. Is there a chance that, you know, the social unrest yesterday and the subsequent change in the Senate vote and, you know, certification of the election offers an opportunity for, you know, both sides, Republicans and Democrats, to reset and get back to any semblance of normal policymaking where there's compromise and negotiation? Or are those days gone? I think people were shook up yesterday, but I don't know for how long. So I, I think we will see the results in the days to come. Finally, you, you mentioned uh, some of these Senate committee leadership changes. That's obviously influential, and they set the agenda for those committees and you know, decide what legislation to consider. Are there any that immediately come to mind as incredibly important that you know are game change for certain policy areas? Yes, I think they all matter. I mean, the the appropriations committees that policy, that might be the least of them, but the Senate Banking Committee, the Energy Committees, President-elect Biden was going to come into a Senate where top environmental committees were actually going to be held by coal state Republicans, and actually the ranking members of energy committees were going to be from coal states, but I, I think there'll be less of an ability for them to block policies from their own party, and so those dynamics will change. I think that the inter-party dynamics of both parties will change, and it will actually be more difficult to cut deals with unified democratic control. I know it sounds counterintuitive than it would have been for Biden to cut deals with Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader, who will no longer be so. So then thinking about a couple specific policy areas, President-elect Biden has the last couple days and, and really in the last month or so been talking a lot about the need for additional fiscal stimulus, additional checks to taxpayers, $2,000. Is that the first item that Biden and the Democratic Congress move on? I believe so. That's another significant change that will result. So instead of having to negotiate with McConnell, who's not wanted to divide his caucus, where Republicans in the Senate are about evenly split, more or less, between people who don't want to add to the deficit any longer and people who want to pass more stimulus, you'll get the stimulus bill to the floor and it will be very difficult to vote against it. How do they balance then the Democrats, you know, passing legislation like that that's going to cost, you know, anywhere from 500 to 750 billion potentially with the need to then also pass a green infrastructure package? We, we've talked about those as the two competing priorities before the Senate flip. It was expected that infrastructure would then be, you know, the go to because it'd be harder to get Republicans in the Senate to agree to the stimulus checks and additional fiscal. How do they, from a debt and deficit perspective, justify that amount of spending moving forward? 
And are there any policy tools like what you mentioned with reconciliation that, you know, provide pay-fors that can help get Republicans on board? Well, people can justify things to their own mind, but what will happen is what we talked about earlier, reconciliation. There would not have been a a budget agreement between the House and Senate in all likelihood if Republicans had retained control of the Senate, which would have meant that a reconciliation bill would probably not have been possible. Now, the House and Senate will work to come up with a budget agreement between themselves, and they will be able to try to push through additional spending through the reconciliation process, which requires a bare majority of votes. So you don't have, you won't have to get to 60 votes in the Senate like you do on normal legislation. So I think what they will probably try to do is to undo aspects of the 2017 Republican tax reform in order to pay, at least in part, for some of their priorities. Is there anything there that comes to mind as, you know, low-hanging fruit within the tax bill? They're going to look at the rates for top owners, both corporate and individual. And that can only raise so much money. So the question then moving forward, is that just a cosmetic thing built to satisfy the base, or is that actually a realistic pay for for, for aspects of the spending agenda? Well, what's cosmetic and what's realistic is in the eye of the beholder. So the rules are set to what the Congressional Budget Office says increases the deficit over a 10-year window. And it's not really material whether anyone believes that what you choose will work. So everyone knew when they passed Obamacare that it was going to add to the deficit. But because of the way the bill was set up, where revenue started coming in, but most of the benefits didn't go out until outer years in the bill, people could come and say, this bill decreases the deficit. Everyone knew that was not true. At least in my opinion, actually, that this is the most impactful area, policy area, outside of just additional spending and some of the tax changes. David has talked about this at great length, that you have to look at all of Biden's policy priorities with the lens of green, environmental, progressive ID. So a Green New Deal is now on the table, whereas it probably wasn't before. Now, what a Green New Deal means is not clear. That's a bumper sticker slogan, and you can shoehorn a lot of different bills and and call it a Green New Deal, but it does mean that there's more revenue on the table, and it does mean that the inter-party dynamics of the Democratic Party are going to demand that the administration focus on something that they can sell to the American public as a Green New Deal. Uh, Just can I ask you a question? You've been talking about over the last decade the the Byrd Rule. Can the Byrd Rule put limits on spending? Like, isn't there some type of condition in there around the Byrd Rule and how that would potentially govern on the fiscal side? There are a number of aspects to the Byrd Rule, and but yes, it limits what can be objected to, what can be included, what is germane. It means that there can't be changes to Social Security in the bills. But bigger than the Byrd Rule are the other strictures and the Senate parliamentarian. And that's something that everyone has struggled with. It happened under Obamacare. It happened under the tax reform bill in 2017. You're not supposed to be able to put into a reconciliation bill provisions that don't have budgetary effects as their main aim. And that's actually, when we talk about Obamacare, for instance, people forget it was actually two different bills. There was one that was substantive in terms of policy, and there was another that was a reconciliation bill. It actually had to pass in two halves. Because it had to pass into two halves, reconciliation bills expire 
after the 10-year budget window. And so with the tax reform bill and with some aspects of Obamacare, Congress then has to go back after 10 years and vote to re-extend those provisions. I see. Yeah, because all the bond market cares about, like if, if you're a foreign investor in Germany that buys treasuries, and you all of a sudden you see this Congress go to one-party control, the first question you have is, could they, you know, with reconciliation, could they just do a trillion-dollar spending plan? You can. Larry, then, just continuing on that thread, John's talking a lot about the fact that having one-party control of Congress in and of itself actually, ironically, does not necessarily make negotiation easier, doesn't make policy easier. How does this congressional gridlock change the attractiveness of the United States as a target of foreign investment? Yes, so think about uh, six weeks ago. The probability of those two Georgia seats going blue was less than 10%, and now it's 100%, or I guess 99%. So... All around the world, bond investors are freaked out because the lesson from the, the Trump presidency was the moment Trump was elected, had one-party control of all branches, and bonds sold off 100 bips in like 60 days. It was one of the most vicious bond market sell-offs I've ever seen. And so now investors are weighing this same dynamic around seeping yield curve. So all the reflation-type trades that had been working are continuing to work because you've got a steepening yield curve. Domestic spending is bringing money in. Regional banks outperformed the NASDAQ by 8% yesterday. And that's how it happened like in the last 20 years, six times, something like that. What's the long-term impact on, on Fed policy here? There's going to be increased spending. You, you're going to have Yellen, former Fed chair, and Powell coordinating very closely, you know, Treasury and the Fed. Does this mean that, you know, rates are going to stay low for even longer? Well, there's a couple things going on. Number one, David Metzlerman has made a point around reconciliation might bring up a, like, it's not going to be like a slam dunk to just pull this off. It might take some time. So the market might have an initial reaction to that. So what typically happens is the market overreacts early, then eventually you get the real reaction, like with tax, tax reform. Now we have a dynamic with the Fed where the entire global investment community is starting to buy into MMT, modern monetary theory. And more and more politicians bought into MMT and that think that you can spend willy-nilly without any repercussions because the Fed's going to be holding down bond yields. And right now we're doing $120 billion a month of, of asset purchases and bonds are still selling off, which tells you thinking is the Fed's not going to really step in to control yields until you're at least 130 on 10s. And we just, in the last couple of days, we've gone from 96 to 106 in terms of 10 years. So a, a Yellen-led Fed with the Biden Treasury and the Biden Treasury and then Powell, that combination with a Democrat Senate is going to just get you a much more liberal largesse of spending, the belief in MMT, and there's just a number of trades that, that are going to work really well around that. I would like to amplify something you said, Larry. I consider reconciliation fool's gold, and it leads lawmakers to overreach. So with Obamacare, it led to excluding Republicans in a way which ultimately probably played heavily into the loss of Congress for Democrats in 2010 with the rise of the Tea Party. It subjected the entire bill to a constitutional challenge that didn't have to happen. It subjected the bill, at least large parts of the bill, to expire in 2000. 
19. And so when you can pass something and get to 60 votes, there's a surer way to do it. You can pass additional stimulus with 60 votes, especially if you control the agenda setting in the Senate. If you move to use reconciliation when you don't have to, you're probably going to gin up a lot of ill will and bad feelings. And it always takes longer to work through reconciliation than you think it will. And even if you try to do something ambitious like a Green New Deal, if you go to overreach, you have to worry on your backside about more conservative Democrats. Senator Manchin from West Virginia comes to mind. And then you're down even one vote and the whole effort collapses. And so Democrats will definitely consider reconciliation, just as Republicans and Democrats have before them. But it's not as easy as it looks just because you need a bare majority. Are are there already existing Democratic lawmakers out there pushing back against the idea of reconciliation because of, you know, the 2017 tax cuts leaving a bad taste in their mouth? You know, how, how do you think that Schumer feels about it generally? Well, right now, D.C. is still reeling from the results in Georgia and reeling from the um, invasion of the Capitol yesterday. So these talks have not gotten off of foot. So the answer to that is TBD. We'll keep watching. And once everything settles down in D.C., it'll become a little bit clearer where the policy path is. So, you know, Bart, I want to bring you in now. Let's talk about the heat map. First, maybe you can update us on global caseloads. Of, of COVID, there are obviously, you know, widespread renewed virus restrictions and, and they're coming off other places. Vaccine distribution is slow to roll out in many places. You know, what does the data say? And then let's talk about Croatia. Yeah, thank you, uh, Chris. Yeah, so the, the headlines on, on the pandemic over the past two weeks have, you know, have been, have been awful. We talk a lot about, you know, like you say, slow vaccine rollout, the second strain that started in the UK. And the data tells a slightly different story is that the, the growth rate continues to very slowly decline. I think, you know, that's the, the impact of renewed uh, severe restrictions on economic activity, especially throughout Europe. And so the cases are up 11% over two weeks ago, down from 12% the week before, down from 13 14% the week before that. And you're right, it's a slow vaccine distribution is kind of a global phenomenon, though now in, in certain parts of Europe and the U.S., there seems to be some momentum building. So that's the, the global picture. In terms of Croatia, people have seen the news about the, the recent earthquake, which is the most severe one in, in decades. The country was already super heavily hit by the pandemic, has about five times the global average of cases per capita. It has a strong healthcare infrastructure compared to the other 74 countries in this data set. So when it comes to kind of impact on public health, it ranks pretty well. It has a, a high debt load, and it, while it's in the EU, it, it does not yet use the euro, but it, it issues mostly euro-denominated debt, so it's, it issues debt effectively in foreign currency. It has, a, on the flip side of that, a well-managed flow against the kuna, against the euro, I think the the reason we've picked them to underperform is the, the impact on economic growth for this country will be much more severe than other European countries. You know, the, the trade with its largest trading partner, Italy, has has collapsed. It's a tourism-dependent economy. And so the, the economic picture for 2021, as and when a recovery starts, is quite cloudy. Just shifting to, to Europe, I mean, is there any chance of additional fiscal stimulus or in terms of additional fiscal, I, that's not currently on the agenda. I think the ECB is pretty much full on in terms of its own easing, which is well signaled and was recently expanded. 
And I think what the market has been anticipating, you know, the policy moves to watch for there is that they're also the bank regulator for the big banks in Europe. You know, what, what they decide in months to come about dividends uh, will be interesting. In terms of, of fiscal, you know, there was a relief that everything got sorted and negotiated late December in the final days of the German presidency. And now the money needs to start flowing. And so we'll, we'll see you know, what the logistics and, and impact of that is. And then if the situation worsens for whatever reason, you know, there's an, another strain of the virus. I don't know. There's something with the vaccine. Who knows? They may start those talks. I think you know, Europe is happily out of the headlines right now. So it's a lot easier to coordinate vaccine rollout and generally do policy if you're not on the front page of the of the Financial Times or the Wall Street Journal. So rolling out the tools they have and you know, hoping to fly under the radar, both the ECB and the Commission. One thing clients are talking about is the Fed and the, the rules around dividends versus the ECB and the rule around dividends. It appears to be in a divergence. I don't know how sustainable that is, but part if if the Fed is more liberal around dividends and the ECB is, is more uh, conservative in terms of limitations, then U.S. financials are going to continue to diverge from European financials. That could be a reasonable base case, Larry, because in the end, you know, the Fed doesn't have trillion euro of non-performing loans to worry about, and the ECB does. The ECB is worried that, you know, as these support packages roll off in many individual EU countries, that the bank's balance sheet are still are still going to have a hit. So they're going to be very cautious when it comes to approving dividends, and that's, they clearly signaled that in their December meeting. From a foreign policy perspective, Bart, I, I wanted to touch on one last topic. We, we put out a note talking about Nord Stream 2. With the Democratic Senate, I'm not sure it fundamentally alters the situation all that much. Lawmakers writ large don't like the pipeline. I mean, we're not going to get around that fact. You put out a note talking about the pipeline construction concluding and, you know, what that effectively means for U.S. really transatlantic relations. This morning, I saw that Germany's discussing setting up a liability shield for companies involved and for those who transact in final product. Is there anything, you know, there that actually is can be done? Because previous efforts to shield these companies from liability really didn't work out. Yeah. Okay. So let's start with that last point. Any effort to shield European companies and their officers from U.S. sanctions is fruitless unless and until the dollar ceases to be the world's dominant currency, which is not on the horizon. So the power of U.S. sanctions is derived from the global role of the dollar, including in the settlement as, as the settlement currency of most trades, including intra-European trades. And so there is no real, you can set up all sorts of legal things, SPVs and whatnot, that there is no way to, if companies are going to be risk averse, they're going to stay out of those businesses or they're going to retreat from the businesses that the U.S. objects to. And that's, we've seen that time and again, including in this pipeline project where even companies that aren't in the EU, you know, Norwegian, Swiss companies, seize their involvement because they don't want to see their CEOs and CFOs on treasury sanctions lists. So that being said, on Nord Stream 2, while everybody was focused on the election here, it, it looks like Gazprom, which is the, the Russian gas company that's the main sponsor, found one of its own ships to do some additional pipeline, and there appears to be a path to completion slowly, still in 2021. In the NDAA, there's additional sanctions for this project, but they mostly involve construction activities. I think 2021, like you say, there's nobody in Washington who likes this deal. It doesn't really matter who's in power, the Democrats or the Republicans. There's going to be additional legislation, additional sanctions. I think in 2021, the Biden administration will work with Congress to get the sanctions for the operations phase. So once this pipeline is complete, let's say in an optimistic scenario, it's late in 2021 or early 2022, companies that buy gas from the German terminal end would be at risk of 
being sanctioned, and that includes major European energy companies like Shell. So I suspect they'll start lobbying in Washington quite hard, and then this will be an irritant. And I think in Europe, people may be looking at this and thinking they can get this in under the radar or something as as the U.S. is distracted by yesterday's occupation of the Capitol building and whatnot. But this carries bipartisan, bicameral opposition for, for reasons to do with the stability of Ukraine, for reasons to do with European dependence on Russian gas, and also from a U.S. selfish perspective, the U.S. would like to sell more of its own liquefied natural gas to Europe, so they don't like the competition over Russia. I expect this to be a topic quite high on the transatlantic economic agenda and, and something that Brussels and Washington are going to disagree on. As an irritant then, I mean, are you bullish or bearish on the prospect of this Nord Stream 2 getting in the way of Biden's, you know, reapproach to transatlantic relations, trying to build that up in the wake of, you know, President Trump's more aggressive posture? Will this ultimately get in the way of that relationship, whether it's digital tax frameworks or other trade and investment related ideas? Yeah, I don't think it's top of the list in terms of things that are difficult. Airbus, Boeing, there's digital taxes, a range of topics. Opposition of the U.S. to this project is quite well known in, in Europe. There'll be an initial kind of rebound and a lot of goodwill also because if this incoming administration wants to focus on, on the energy transition, the EU is very focused on the energy transition. And John Kerry will probably visit Brussels quite soon and we'll have a kumbaya moment about all of that. This is something for a bit later. But, you know, Germany wants to push this quite aggressively also because Europe should have its own energy and and financial sovereignty. There's a lot of frustrations in Europe about the extraterritorial nature of U.S. sanctions for the reasons we were talking about earlier. And that's why the EU Commission is pushing the, the role of the euro so hard. Thanks, Bart. I appreciate that. I would like to thank everyone for joining us today. I'd also like to thank our team of analysts for offering their unique insights. You can also follow us on Twitter for further insight into capital markets and the political economy. If you wish to reach out for more information, please email us at research at acg-analytics.com. Everyone have a good day. Thank you very much.